Keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 6. Verses 27 through 36 will be our text this morning, and we will focus on verses 32 through 36 in particular. Now, if you recall, the last time I preached, it was from this passage, and we used a question for the title. Are you living like a child of God? This is the second part of that sermon, so are you living like a child of God, part two. And once again, before we begin to work through this passage, I want to draw your attention to the end of verse 25, or excuse me, the end of verse 35, and the first part of verse 36. If you do these things, the instruction given earlier, ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. This passage doesn't just teach good morals. Jesus was not simply teaching the golden rule and then applying it to different circumstances in life. In this passage, Jesus taught that this is how we must act toward those around us because this is the nature of God. God is kind to the unthankful and the evil. God is merciful. Are we emulating the kindness demonstrated by our Heavenly Father? Are we showing mercy? Are we living like the children of God? God wants us to live like we are His children. Before we begin, let's pray once more. Lord, I pray that as we study carefully this passage from Your Word this morning, that we would see just a small glimpse of the deep truth that is revealed here. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit have free reign to work in our hearts and lives, convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, conform us more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's quickly remind ourselves about the wider context of this passage. Jesus is preaching in the countryside of Galilee to a large multitude of people. And this multitude is a mixed group of both believers and unbelievers in three distinct groups. There is the general multitude of people made up uh, of inhabitants of Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon, people who were curious about Jesus, who came to hear him teach. There was a group of committed followers of Jesus. These were his disciples. There, this is a fairly large group at this point in Jesus' ministry. And finally, there were the twelve who had just been chosen and called as apostles. And we noted in the last sermon that there were unbelievers in each one of these groups. The multitudes would ultimately turn upon Jesus and call for his crucifixion. Many of his disciples would turn away from following Jesus when his teachings became hard to accept. And even among the twelve, one was a traitor. Many of these people were not living like the children of God because they were not God's children. Now, one application for us from this text is a call to self-examination. Is there spiritual life within me that is responding in obedience to what Jesus taught in this passage? Am I living like a child of God? And if not, then we must examine ourselves on an even deeper level and ask, am I a true child of God? Have I ever been born again by the Spirit of God? 
May each one of us take seriously this call to self-examination. This text is also a call to repentance. None of us can honestly look at this text, plumb the depths of what Christ taught here, and then say, all of this I have done perfectly. Each one of us should be challenged and convicted from this text and be moved to repentance and a renewed desire to walk in obedience to Christ's commands. And finally, this text indicates the degree of suffering a Christian should be willing to endure for the sake of Jesus Christ. If you remember, when we looked at the blessed statements found in verses 20 through 23 of Luke 6, we saw that those had a first-line application to those who suffered for the Son of Man's sake, for Jesus' sake. This is not a new sermon. Jesus is still talking to the same group of people. The context has not changed. And so the suffering, the self-denial that's described in our text should be willingly and even gladly taken up by every believer for the Son of Man's sake. In our flesh, we recoil from some of the things that Jesus says in these verses. But we bear this burden out of obedience to Jesus Christ and for His name's sake. Now the last time we were in this text, we focused on the first part of this passage. And the command found in verse 31 that's often referred to as the golden rule. As you would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. Jesus laid out this overarching principle that was to guide the lives of his disciples. As you would that men should do to you, do you also to them. This command from Jesus, as we saw, is unqualified. You're to treat your family, your friends, your neighbors, even your enemies this way. This command from Jesus is rooted in justice and not in identity. And finally, this command from Jesus requires that we lay down our lives. And we saw that in all of this, Jesus is our perfect example. So that's the context and a little bit of review from last time. Now let's continue to work through this passage. In verses 32 through 34, Jesus taught that his disciples must have a righteousness greater than sinners. A righteousness greater than sinners. Beginning in verse 32. For if you love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. If you do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if you lend to them of whom you hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. We must have a righteousness greater than sinners. Now you might think, well, that's rather obvious, is it not? Obviously, we need a righteousness greater than sinners. But isn't this how we like to measure ourselves? We like to compare ourselves with others who we think are worse sinners than ourselves. And like that self-righteous Pharisee in Luke 18, 11, who prayed, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. Look at my righteousness. I love those that love me. I do good to those who do good to me. I lend to those from whom I hope to receive again. This is exactly how we like to measure our righteousness. We just don't put it as bluntly as Jesus does in this passage. 
We like to dress up our morality, put it in the best light possible, and pass it off as righteousness. In this passage, Jesus challenged this measure of righteousness and showed that it is only the righteousness of sinners. And there's something else we can glean from this passage. If we do not do these things, if we do not love those that love us, if we do not do good to those who do good to us, if we do not lend to those from from whom we hope to receive, if we do not do these things, then we don't even have the righteousness common to sinners. How often do we fall short of even human ideals of righteousness? The righteousness of sinners. Well, let's look at these three examples that Jesus gave in this passage. First, sinners love those that love them. Verse 32, if you love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. Love. And again, it's that strong word for love, agapeo. Love is good. Love is commendable. This love is commanded from us as believers. It's a good thing. And we would recognize this sort of love as a good thing. We know we should love. But Jesus called his disciples to examine themselves further. Jesus said, If you love them which love you, what thank have ye? The word that's translated as thank in this verse in the King James Version is most often translated elsewhere in the New Testament as grace. And that might help us better understand what Jesus was saying here. When we love those that love us, we're often tempted to look upon that as a good thing that we have done. And in one sense, it is a good thing. We ought to love those that love us. But Jesus said, what thank have ye? What grace do you have? What benefit is this to you? What sort of evidence is this of grace in your hearts? And then Jesus immediately answered his own question. Sinners also love those that love them. Sinful men know how to do this. They know that they ought to do this. If you perfectly love those that love you, you've hit par for a sinner. And I know that there's not a single one of you here who has done this perfectly. I have not done this perfectly. We don't even have the righteousness of sinners. Where is our righteousness? Our best righteousness is not enough. Have you ever heard someone say something like, Oh, Mr. So-and-so, boy, he is a good man. He really loves his wife and children. That's a good thing. That ought to be. A man should love his wife and children. But Jesus says, that's not enough. Don't think that counts in your favor with God. That's the righteousness of sinners, and it's not enough. It's not enough. Well, next, Jesus says, Sinners do good to those who do good to them. Look at verse 33. And if you do good to them, which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. The format of this question is exactly the same as the question in verse 32. The only difference is this verse talks about doing good instead of loving. And to do good is a very broad word which carries the idea of doing a favor or duty for the benefit of another. And again, it's a good thing to do good. And sometimes we pride ourselves in the good that we do. But again, the words of Jesus Christ challenge us to examine ourselves on a deeper level. To whom do I do good? 
to those that do good to me? What good is that? What benefit is that to you? What sort of evidence is that of grace in your heart? And again, Jesus answered this question. Sinners also do even the same. If you do good to everyone who does good to you, and you do that perfectly your whole life, you've achieved the righteousness of sinners. It's not enough. God calls us to a higher standard of righteousness. Next, sinners lend to sinners when they expect to receive their money or goods back. Look at verse 34. If you lend to them of whom you hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. Again, Jesus used the same pattern for this question as the two verses before. Now, if you recall from the law, the Jews were forbidden from exacting usury, high interest rates from fellow Jews. Now, this law was frequently disobeyed by the Jews. If you read through the prophets, you see many times where God speaks against the rich and their abuse of the poor. And that sin that God was condemning was usury. But a practice developed among devout Jews where sometimes they would lend money or goods to fellow Jews and not collect any interest. They would lend with the expectation to only receive back what they had given. And this was seen as a morally good thing because they were forgoing the interest they could have made if they had given that loan to someone else. And that practice may have been at least part of what Jesus was referring to here. But again, Jesus challenged this as a measure of righteousness. He said, don't sinners do the same? Sinners sometimes lend with the hope of only receiving back what they have lent. There's no righteousness to be found in this sort of lending practice other than the righteousness of sinners. In fact, if you always and only lended this way, all you would achieve is the righteousness of sinners. And it's no good. It's no good. It's not enough. That's not God's righteousness. But what conclusion did Jesus come to? What did Jesus tell his disciples? Look at the first part of verse 35. But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. Love, do good, and lend. All three of the things Jesus had talked about earlier are repeated in this verse. We're called to love We're called to do good. We're called to lend, to be generous. But what separates these actions when performed by the disciples of Jesus Christ is their object. Sinners love those that love them. Do good to those who do good to them. Lend to those from whom they expect to receive again. Disciples of Jesus Christ are told to love their enemies, to do good to their enemies, to lend, hoping for nothing in return. Don't confuse man's righteousness with God's righteousness. They may look very similar at a glance, but when closely examined, we see that man's righteousness is only a faint shadow of God's righteousness. They're similar in action, but opposite in object. And the righteousness of sinners is worth nothing before God. There's nothing thankworthy in it. There's no evidence of grace to be found in it. It earns you no favor with God. You must have the righteousness of God. The righteousness of sinners won't cut it. 
Now, we must pause here to make application to ourselves. We must answer this question. How can we get God's righteousness? How can we get God's righteousness? There's only one place. The cross of Jesus Christ. Our works are not enough. We don't even perfectly fulfill the righteousness of sinners. And if sinful man can find fault in us, how much more can the holy God find fault in us? We need an alien righteousness. A righteousness that's foreign. A righteousness that's not native to us. And it can't be the righteousness of another man. We've already seen. The righteousness of man is not enough. It must be God's righteousness. And that can only come to us through Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross to make a substitutionary atonement for our sin. That means He took our place. He was our substitute. Because of the Gospel, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, His righteousness, God's perfect righteousness, is freely available to us. In salvation, our sins are laid upon Jesus Christ, and His righteousness is given to us. We must have God's righteousness, and there's only one place to get it, and that is through Jesus Christ. Your righteousness is not enough. Cast it aside. Remember what Paul wrote. He said, all these things that I had confidence in, all these good works that I did, all these things that I thought earned favor with God when I had my eyes open to the gospel of Jesus Christ, I cast them aside as dung, as worthless, as trash, as filth, as no good. Cast your righteousness aside. Turn from it. Repent of it. Your best righteousness is sin. Repent of it. And turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Ask Him for His righteousness. The promise of the Gospels, He will not turn you away. Jesus said in John 6, 37, All that the Father hath given to me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Come to Christ. He will not cast you out. Once you're in Christ, once you are a Christian, then you're called to live as a child of God. If you are a Christian, don't find any comfort in the righteousness of sinners. In loving those that love you. In doing good only to those who do good to you. And lending only to those from whom you hope to receive. As children of our Heavenly Father, we are to reflect Him to the world. We're to love our enemies. We're to do good to our enemies. We're to lend, hoping for nothing in return. We're to live like the children of God. You may read these verses and hear that teaching, and you may say, well, if I live like that, People are going to take advantage of me. I'll be hurt. I'll suffer. Yes. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 Jesus Christ our Lord suffered. Are we better than He? We're called to live as the children of God. And there are times when that will be hard. There are times when we will suffer. But this is the instruction that Jesus gave to his disciples. We're to live like the children of God in this world. Well, how many times have we read these words from Jesus? Never plumb their depths. May the Holy Spirit of God convict us for taking comfort in the righteousness of sinners. 
drive us to the cross of Jesus Christ for His righteousness, and then enable us, by His grace, to go out and to live as we are called to live as the children of God. This sort of life gives evidence that we really are God's children. Well, now we get to the second part of verse 35 and verse 36. I'm going to read them once again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be called the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Well, there in verse 35 we're told, your reward shall be great. Now, what is the reward that Jesus promised in this verse? He could be referring to what comes immediately before that phrase in verse 35, that instruction to lend, hoping for nothing again. God takes note of generosity and sacrificial giving. This is not a promise of temporal reward, but it is a promise that your Father in heaven sees and will reward you in his time. He could also be referring to all the previous instruction. Love your enemies, do good, lend, hoping for nothing again. And such sacrifice is promised a heavenly reward. The righteousness of this world can earn you reward, but it is a temporal reward. A temporal, temporal reward. And like everything else in this world, they're passing away. But the reward for walking in God's righteousness is an eternal reward. A reward that cannot be lost, a reward that cannot pass away, a reward secured and laid up for us by God himself. And next there in verse 35, we're told, And ye shall be the children of the highest. And this does not mean that living like this makes us the children of God, but rather it marks us as the children of God. You can only be made a child of God through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You're adopted into the family of God through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But you demonstrate your adoption to God's family. You demonstrate that you are God's child by your manner of life. And this is how a child of God is called to live. Now why? Why are we called to live this way? Because this is God's nature. This is what God is like. Now look and be astounded at what is revealed here about the nature of God. In verse 35, God is called the highest, or the most high. Luke is the only New Testament author who uses this word as a title for God. Now, this is a very common title for God in the Old Testament. And it's often used to demonstrate or to draw attention to God's superiority over the false gods of the pagan nations. And I wonder if Luke, who's potentially the only Gentile author of Scripture, writing to Theophilus, who was almost certainly a Gentile, used this title for God, highest or most high, for similar effect, to demonstrate or draw attention to God's superiority over the false gods of pagan nations. He is the Most High God, and there is none other worthy of worship. He is the highest, most exalted. He can't get higher than God. Now, what does God do from His exalted, supreme position? Look at the end of verse 35. He is kind unto the unthankful, to the evil. What a description of God and his dealings 
with man. God is kind. This word is also translated as good and gracious in other places in the New Testament. Now consider that for a moment. The Most High God is kind. He is good. He is gracious. And to whom is God kind? God is kind to the unthankful and evil. I believe this is one of the most astounding revelations found in Scripture, delivered from the mouth of Jesus Christ. God is kind to the unthankful and evil. Every sort of sin is described here. The unthankful, sins committed by omission, by not doing the things that we should do, and evil. Sins committed with actions by doing what we should not do. And the Greek word that's used here for evil, it particularly indicates evil that causes labor, pain, or sorrow. The sin of man causes man much labor, pain, and sorrow. But it's also a burden to God. The sin of man grieves God. All men fall into the categories described here. You are unthankful. You are evil. You might take offense to that. You might say, no, I'm not. I'm a good man. Are you? How do you know? Well, you might say, well, not like this guy. I haven't done the sort of evil things that this person has done. That's worthless. That measure of righteousness is no good. As we saw earlier in this text, if you're perfect in comparison to other men and in the estimation of men, congratulations, you've achieved the righteousness of sinners. And it's not enough. It's worthless. And you don't even have that righteousness. You are not perfect in the eyes of men, much less in the eyes of God. You are unthankful. You are evil. I am unthankful. I am evil. What hope can we possibly have? None whatsoever. Except for this. The Most High God is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. That's astounding. Matthew Henry commented, It is the glory of God that He is kind to the unthankful and to the evil that He bestows the gifts of common providence upon even the worst of men who are every day provoking Him and rebelling against Him and using those very gifts to His dishonor. God is kind to the unthankful and the evil. And it is to His glory that He is kind. Now look at verse 36. There we're told, Be ye merciful as your Father also is merciful. What does this verse tell us about God? The Most High God is merciful. God delights in mercy. The mercy of God draws sinners to Him. Listen to how God describes Himself in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. Sometimes people think, oh, God in the Old Testament, real harsh, terrible, wrathful God. Listen to how God describes Himself. It's God speaking in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, 
abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and will by no means clear the guilty. God gives six descriptions of his mercy and one description of his judgment. God's mercy is one of the most eminent facets of his glory. In Exodus 3.18, Moses prayed to God and said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And in verse 19, God answered and said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God's glory is revealed in his mercy. God's mercy sweetens all his other attributes. God's justice, separated from his mercy, would only be a terror. God's strength, separated from his mercy, would only be to crush us. God's holiness, separated from his mercy, would only magnify our guilt. But in God's mercy shown to us, his justice becomes our salvation in Jesus Christ. His strength, instead of crushing us, holds us up. And His holiness is imputed to us. All because of the mercy of God. Woe to us if we despise the mercy of God. And woe to us who are called the children of God, who have been shown much mercy. Woe to us if we are not merciful to others. Be ye therefore merciful as your Father also is merciful. Are you living like a child of God? You may not be living like a child of God because you are not His child. There were many in this multitude who first heard this message from Jesus who were not God's children. And we've seen in these verses the sharp contrast between man's righteousness, the righteousness of sinners, and the righteousness of God. Your righteousness is not enough. You must become a child of God. And there's only one way to be a true child of God, and that's through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. In John 14, 6, Jesus told his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You must turn from yourself, turn from your sin, and turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. And when we come in faith and repentance to Jesus Christ for salvation, our sins are placed upon Him, and His righteousness is given to us. The righteousness of man is not enough. You must have God's righteousness and can only come through Jesus Christ. You must become a child of God. But then once you are a Christian, adopted into the family of God, you must live like a child of God. We have new life in Jesus Christ. We were dead in trespasses and sins and now are alive in Christ. We're to walk in newness of life. We're to follow the example of our Heavenly Father. What have we learned this morning? The Most High God is kind to the unthankful and evil. Are you? Don't be satisfied and self-righteous when you show kindness to the thankful and good. Recall to a higher life. A life of sacrifice, a life of self-denial, a life of suffering, of following Jesus Christ and His example in this world. And the Most High God is merciful. Are you? Is mercy one of the guiding principles of your life? 
God is merciful. God glories in His mercy. And we're told, Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Are you living like a child of God? Am I living like a child of God? May God help us. Let's pray. Lord, we sit humbly here before your word this morning. Lord, I pray that we've all been convicted this morning. I pray that if there's anyone here who's outside of Christ, that they would see from this passage that all that they do, all their good works, anything that can be stacked up as righteousness, it's worthless. It's not even the righteousness recognized by sinners, much less righteousness recognized by God. Lord, help us to abandon any form of righteousness like that. Just only in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as believers here this morning, we would see the high standard of life that we are called to live in your word. Lord, convict us of those areas where we are falling short. Lord, help us to be kind and merciful as our Heavenly Father is merciful and kind. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.